Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find out stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. (laughs) Because I want you to tell Tell me me something something I don't know. know. Good evening, I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, and tonight we are coming to you from... Minneapolis. We have got an audience full of smart people, and we will invite them up one at a time to tell us anything that's interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. And if everything goes according to plan, we'll all be a bit smarter by the time we're through. Helping me out tonight, I am so pleased to welcome our special guest, the host of On Being, Krista Tippett. Krista Tippett, let's see what we know about you so far. We know that On Being, your radio project about faith and wisdom, was launched back in 2003, that it now airs on 400 NPR stations. Among your guests on the show in the past, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, Yo-Yo Ma, and Sheryl Sandberg. We know that you grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home in Oklahoma, And then you went to college at Brown and then wrote for the New York Times, both of which one might think would have drained all the religion out of you. But we know you went on to get a Master's of Divinity at Yale. We also know that you received from President Obama the National Humanities Medal for, quote, thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence. So Krista Tippett, tell us something we don't know about you. Well, um, I did that writing for the New York Times in Divided Berlin. And when I left Divided Berlin, I went to the most beautiful place I'd ever been, which was a tiny village on the island of Majorca. And there, because I thought I still had to be purposeful, I wrote a really bad novel. Did, did you finish? You finished the novel, I finished though. It Couldn't have been that bad then. Very bad. Any novel that's written in a month is bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say... Um, We asked you a huge favor, and I'm not sure if you were able to to make this happen, but we asked that if you still had a copy of that manuscript, if you could dig it out and maybe read a little bit aloud for us tonight, if possible. (laughs) And Stephen, only for you, (laughs) I did dig into these dusty boxes. So this is the first and surely last reading you know, I left Berlin. I, I said one of the reasons I had to leave is because I was losing my sense of humor. And now I rediscover this thing I wrote, which is a little romance that starts in a cemetery. Mm. So Yeah, funny. Yeah, <laughs> funny already. Yeah. Okay, a really famous cemetery. Yeah. Just a few paragraphs. I found you beside Hegel's grave. <laughs> <laughs> Need I say that I was shaking slightly when I tapped you on the shoulder to say hello? You were deep in thought. You looked startled as you turned towards my voice and then puzzled and then pleased. What are you doing here, you asked. And then, he's English, I didn't know Americans read Hegel. Mm. (laughs) You were on your way soon to a press conference, you told me, but there was time for a cup of coffee. I would love a cup of coffee. I just want to find Schopenhauer before we go, you said, and darted away from me. You were nervous at this funny coincidence too. Can you admit that now? I found Schopenhauer first and led you to him. We had coffee at the cafe by the opera, and really most of the details of that day and of the next weeks are not worth repeating. They can all be summed up by saying, we fell in love. (laughs) Uh, So I have two observations, Krista. Um, One is there is nothing as sexy as dead philosophers in a a graveyard. Uh, I think you you, you set the right uh, tone there. But um, my... (laughs) But my main observation is, it really sounds like Krista Tippett. That's it sounds it? like your voice and your writing in the best way, in the way that I, I love. So um, as embarrassed as you may have been to share that, I, I, I so appreciate it. And I'm, I'm sure that we all do. <laughs> I am really pleased you've joined us here for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Uh, here's how it works, Krista. We will bring a series of guests on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. You and I will hear them out and ask some questions, and eventually we'll all pick a winner. Now, that winner will be based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? To help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker, Maggie Ryan Sanford. 
Maggie is a science writer and researcher with a background in comedy, which is especially useful these days for writing about science, I would imagine. Uh, Maggie, you are meant to be tonight the peacemaker between fact and fiction. you have any actual real-life peacemaking uh, experience? Actually, yes. When I was in high school, I was a mediator between teenagers and their parents. I had a co-mediator who was an adult, and then I was a teenager. So if you can imagine being a teenager and trying to tell the adult sitting across the table from you that they need to calm down and listen to their teenager, challenging. All right, very good. All right, then, it is time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our first audience contestant, Steve Friedberg. All right, uh, Steve, who are you? What do you do? Uh, I am an evolutionary biologist and associate professor of biology at St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. Very good. Steve, I am ready. So are Krista Tippett and Maggie Ryan Sanfords. What do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? So in humans, sex ratios are about 50-50, female to male, skewing slightly towards male. And this is true of most animals. But in sea turtles, populations are often as biased as 90% female. Now, this probably has something to do with how sex is determined in turtles, not by genetics, but by the temperature of the egg during incubation. You see, above a certain temperature, all turtle eggs develop as female. And below a certain temperature, they all develop as male. Now, you might be asking why the skewed sex ratio. Well, through a weird twist of turtle biology, Mothers return to their birthplace to lay their eggs, often traveling hundreds or thousands of miles to do so. So therefore, cool, male-producing beaches have very few female turtles returning to nest there. But warm, female-producing beaches have many turtles returning to nest there. And over time, this accumulation of female-producing sites leads to an overall preponderance of female turtles. Well, it, it just seems to me that the moral of that story is that women can take the heat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like it. That's good. Is it true uh, if a female turtle is laying her eggs on a beach that has white sand, it's more likely to be male because it's cooler than a beach with dark sand? Yeah, it's absolutely true. And interestingly, there have been some beach replenishing programs for beaches that have eroded, and they have replaced the white sand with darker sand and found that it shifted the sex ratio heavily towards females. Is it a problem that there are so many female turtles in a given place, or is that a a good thing? Yeah, I was wondering that too, because if we had that kind of ratio, would it be a population crisis? Sure. So uh, as of now, having a little bit of a surplus of females is... um, helpful for reproductive output. The tricky thing is that if you have so few males, you can, first of all, risk uh, the whole population going extinct if you just lose a few of them. And you can also reduce your genetic variation because you've only got a few male sires who are fertilizing all of the nests in the population. So if we could listen to conversations between these female turtles, it would sound very much like female humans saying, where are all the single men? (laughs) Where are all the good guys? (laughs) Yep. Are there other animals um, with such a skewed sex ratio? Um, There are a bunch of other animals that actually use temperature to determine sex. Uh, Alligators, a lot of lizards, some fish. Uh, None of those really seem to have the really skewed sex ratios of turtles. There are some strange things like parasites that can actually feminize populations that can drive populations extinct because they run out of males. Mm. Uh, Maggie... Steve's been telling us about sex uh, determinism by temperature, right? Is that the way to put sure. it? Is it legit? Anything more to add? Seems like he does know what he's talking about. One of the strange phenomena that I found was uh, this thing that was happening with jet pilots for a while. They found that a lot of them were having girl children. They found out that helicopter pilots who were going up often too had more girl children than boy children. They think that it may have something to do with... Uh, undergoing a lot of exposure to extreme G-force, but only often because then stress counteracts it. So if you're stressed, then, you know, you know what happens when to testicles when you're stressed. I really appreciate your assuming we all know what happens to testicles when you're stressed. <laughs> that was very, it's very generous of you. Steve Freeberg, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Nice job. <laughs> Would you please welcome our next contestant, Savile Lord. Come on up, Savile. Savile. 
Hi, Savile. Uh, can you introduce yourself, please? I am the manager of the Spam Museum here in Austin, Minnesota, and I'm here to tell you about <laughs> why Hawaiians love Spam so much. I would love to know why Hawaiians love Spam so much. Before and during World War II, deep-sea fishing was a main source of income for a large population of Japanese fishermen and the people who lived in Hawaii. But there was a federal statute that was passed in 1940s that prohibited boat owners who were um, American citizens from obtaining fishing licenses. There was a suspicion that Japanese fishermen were passing information to Japan about the sea conditions around the strategically important Hawaii. So we had these new fishing restrictions that cut off a main source of protein to Hawaii. Luckily, spam came about. And Hormel Foods provided during World War II about 15 million cans of Spam to our troops. There was a large U.S. military presence on the island of Hawaii at this time, and therefore that meant that the Hawaiians had access to Spam. Mm. Ever since Spam has become an absolutely explosive food on the island, Hawaiians consume, on average, about 8 million cans of Spam and is now considered by its nickname, Hawaiian Steak. So, uh, I have so many questions for Savile <laughs> about Spam. Yes. Uh, I've never eaten Spam. Oh. So, okay, sorry. I don't know. All right. All right. Oh, no. How does the nutritional value of Spam compare to a real steak? There's six ingredients of Spam. That is sugar, salt, potato starch, sodium nitrate, and then the two ingredients, pork and ham. What's so, the difference between pork and ham? ham well, it's is pork, pork shoulder and ham, so it's actually just two different parts of the, of the pig. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, well, wonderful thing about Spam is that it's baked in its own can. No and way. It is. Really? It makes it shelf-stable, and that's why it's so fundamentally fantastic to be able to, you know, feed so many people over such a long period of time. You know, Spam will be celebrating its 80th birthday this year. Not a lot of foods can say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, a lot of foods have been around longer than 80 years. That's right. true. I was going to call you on that, but that's true. <laughs> So if I were to go to the Spam Museum tomorrow, let's right. say, um, what do I see there? We have an entire international section to showcase kind of what the love of Spam looks like on the different continents. Uh, then we have a whole history of Hormel Foods, as well as a military section that showcases kind of how the love of Spam has grown over the decades. So, so with a lot of the new science and the readjustment of nutritional standards, um, this isn't going to end well for Savile, is it? Well, well no, I, I mean, a lot of, a lot of foods and, and drinks that Americans have consumed, especially in, in the 20th century, are reconfiguring their ingredients. And so I just wonder if Spam is also taking a look at that. Well, we're looking at the protein levels. People need protein. So we, in fact, have a fortified food called Spammy. And it's actually something that we use down in Guatemala to help children of Guatemala. There are 15 varieties of Spam as well, which a lot of people don't know. There's actually, Hawaiians have their own flavor called Portuguese sausage. Wait and a then second. Por Hawaiians have their own flavor called Portuguese sausage? Yes. It's a cultural thing. Down in Texas, they really like the hot and spicy and the jalapeno. And are the cans bigger in Texas? <laughs> Much bigger. Okay. Good, good. Savile Lord, thank you so much. Playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Would you please welcome our next presenter, Timothy Taylor. <laughs> Greetings, Timothy. Why don't you tell us uh, who you are, what you do? Uh, I run the Journal of Economic Perspectives, which is an academic economics journal based at McAllister College over in St. Paul. Woo! Tim, tell us something we don't know then, please. 
When most people talk about immigration, they focus on enforcement issues related to immigration. Uh, build a wall, deportation, border patrol, stuff like that. But when economists talk about immigration, they usually focus on underlying factors that push it, like birth rates, economic differences, and cultural ties. So when the enormous migration happened from Mexico to the U.S. in the 1980s and 1990s, a big chunk of that was uh, that birth rates in Mexico had been very, very high. Mexico's economy in the 1980s was having hyperinflation and depression, and the U.S. was nearby and had cultural ties as a place to go. Those things have all changed now. Birth rates in Mexico are down, the economy's doing better. In fact, uh, immigration from Mexico has now been dropping for the last 10 years. Uh, there's been net out-migration. Hmm. Uh, so where is this going to happen next? Where's the next big hotspot for migration? It's almost certainly going to be from sub-Saharan Africa to Europe. The population projections for Africa are that there'll be about 1.3 billion more people in Africa over the next 30 years. And if even a small number of them think that uh, health and education and lifestyle choices look better in Europe, there's going to be an enormous surge of immigration coming over. So interesting. Krista, what more would you like to know? Um, does it frustrate you that this economist's perspective on the immigration flow from the, our southern border is not part of the public yeah, I've been an knowledge. economist a long time. I'm not frustrated about this stuff anymore. <laughs> You've given up on people ever thinking uh, like you. No, I, I, I just keep saying my little piece, mm. and sooner or later, like water on stone, you hope it makes a difference. I think that with an awful lot of issues, we fight the last battle. And what we're really fighting over now is a surge of immigration that happened in the 80s and 90s. But the issue isn't a new surge. It's what do we do about the people who came then. Okay, um, what were the um, drivers of the fall of birth rate in Mexico? Uh, if you go back in the U.S. to about 1800, there were about seven or eight births per woman on average. That was the fertility rate. And as the U.S. economy did better, people left the farms, they came to the cities, the birth rate comes down gradually over time, people live longer. In the last 50 years or so, birth control became available. And so we don't just have... Uh, Fertility rates dropping because economies do better. We have it because birth control becomes much more available. So Mexico back in about 1960, there were about seven kids per woman. That was the fertility rate then. It's now about 2.3 kids per woman in Mexico. If you were invited to inform policy, how would this reality, this fact, inform strategies moving forward? Well... You know, I'm not someone who believes in open borders. I don't have a problem with enforcing the border to some extent, but I think that right now there's a lot of wasted time and energy going into that. And instead, I would think a lot more about uh, what's going to happen for the people who are already here and how we're going to deal with them or facilitate their entry into, into the broader society. Tim, I'm, I'm curious, um, how reliable are global population growth estimates generally? The numbers are better than you might think, at least if you go out about 30 years. And the reason is because it takes people time to grow up. So uh, the birth rate in Mexico in the 1960s is what determined how many young men about age 20 there were 20 years later. It's when you get beyond that into the third and fourth generation, mm. you think, eh, I'm not so sure about this. Maggie Ryan Sanford, yes. uh, the real reason for uh, the decline in Mexican immigration, what more can you tell us? I cherry-picked several of the numbers that you threw out there, and they all checked out, you guys. So I'm impressed. It's what I do. <laughs> Have you, you ever wonder why um, in Mexico, like, the music has tubas and kind of sounds like polka, and you know, you see people named, like, Johan and Goethe and Franz and stuff like that? It's because for a while, there were a lot of Germans going to Mexico. And then in 1890, this controversial president of Mexico collaborated with Otto von Bismarck, to get Germans to uh, go and, you know, take up all the farmland. So whether you like it or not, there are a lot of Germans in Mexico. <laughs> Very good. Tim Taylor, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more guests from our audience will make Krista Tippett tell us some things we don't know. If you'd like to be a guest on a future show or attend one, please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. 
I'm Adam Conover. You might know me from my TV show, Adam Ruins Everything, but now I'm going deeper as the host of the new podcast, Factually, out now on Earwolf. We dive in with exceptional experts from professors to Pulitzer Prize winners to reveal shocking truths from around the world of human knowledge. And, you know, I do my best to make it funny. It's an investigative comedy podcast for curious people who never stop asking questions. Factually is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our special guest tonight is Krista Tibbet. Now, before we get back to our audience presenters, Krista, I thought it might be fun to try to squeeze a little bit more knowledge out of you. So we have put together some lightning round questions for you. Okay, number one, what's the biggest difference between a saint and a sinner? Well, uh, saints are sinners, but sinners aren't necessarily saints. Uh, next question. Uh, Chrissy, you've lived in Minnesota for a while now. Um, are people here really as nice as they seem, or is it just meant to cover up the fact that they're all devil worshipers? They're complicated, just like people in other places. Uh, but they do have very nice um, manners and and ethos and way about them. And do those manners, and does that manner translate, therefore, into, you think, more acts of kindness, et cetera? I, I do. Mm-hmm. I do. What you practice, you become. Mm-hmm. And Minnesotans practice being nice. Who would be your number one interview get right now for On Being? I used to have a long list of the people I wanted to get one day, but now I'm so excited to see who I'm going to discover mm. that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you uh, could ask one question on on being to our sitting president, what would that question be? <laughs> I don't interview sitting politicians. Mm. Yeah. What would you ask him? Um, if I were you, I mean, if I were doing Freakonomics Radio, yeah. I'd probably ask him, you know, if I had one question, I'd probably want it to be something very specific about an economic policy that he's talked about and whether he truly believes it and what the evidence is for it. You I know? would like to ask him a question that would open him up. Mm-hmm. And I would ask him something that really would not be a gotcha question. Like, mm-hmm. what has surprised you most mm-hmm. about taking this office? And honestly, that's such a simple question, but I'm not sure I've heard any journalist ask him that. And if they did, I don't think he could trust them to just be asking because they really wanted to know. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a great idea. Uh, Krista, you have got two kids, Allie and Sebastian, correct? Uh, Which one's your favorite and why? (laughs) I love them both equally. All right. Um, maybe one of the reasons you're so diplomatic is that after college you actually worked as a diplomat and a journalist in East Germany. Uh, and I understand that years later you got hold of the file that Stasi, the secret police, kept on you. So what did you learn about yourself from that file? I'm curious to know. <laughs> it was like having somebody keep a journal of your 20s. And it's mortifying and fascinating. <laughs> and what, the most fascinating thing, I think, is that the code name the Stasi gave me was She-Wolf. Die Lupe. She-Wolf, yeah. Wow. (laughs) That's what you get. And they couldn't figure out if I was working for the CIA or MI6. Uh Uh-huh. And do you want to tell us which one? I was not working for anybody, but I did go to lots of parties with spies. Now, do you know where She-Wolf came from? Why'd they call you She-Wolf? Uh... Well, they just were very suspicious of me. I don't know, red hair. I yeah. had a lot of boyfriends who were different nationalities. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, this is getting better every minute, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it says here that you've sometimes gone a long time in your life avoiding newspapers in order to avoid bad news. Do you advise this as a strategy for the rest of us? Well, I still read the Sunday New York Times religiously. Um, I do think it would be bad for your soul to read the newspaper every day, certainly the first thing every day. We're not as good at covering what is generative and beautiful and what's going to save us as we are at covering what is catastrophic and failing uh, and will lead us to despair and hopelessness. Mm. That cheered me right up. Thanks, Krista. (laughs) 
Um, finally, let me ask you this. Um, the history uh, in religion of the afterlife, as we all know, is a, is a long and tangled and, um, and often confusing one. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the afterlife. I don't think about that. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't rule it out because I almost wouldn't rule out anything. I don't think whether it exists or doesn't exist makes any difference to how I would live my life now. Mm, A good point. Krista Tippett, thank you so much. Nicely done. All right, time to get back to our little game now. Would you please welcome our next guest, Mike Lindell. Mike, very happy to have you here. Tell us what you do, sir. I uh, invented my pillow, and I'm the CEO of my pillow. You are my pillow. <laughs> so I understand that you have quite the uh, the personal history and business history. Tell us something we don't know about yourself or your pillow. Well, one of my first paychecks, I bought a real expensive pillow. And it didn't work. And this went along my whole life. I'm going, I try in different pillows and having all these sleep interruptions. And, and then uh, finally, I, I, it was one night, I actually came up with the name first, My Pillow, and I had wrote My Pillow all over the house. And like on of, the walls? And no, on a piece of paper oh, everywhere. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> and then I uh, spent the next year and a half trying to invent this pillow and tried all these different fabrics and foams, and I had never been in any kind of production or anything. And Finally came up with it, and it was a shutout everywhere. Turned down everywhere. And so I did this kiosk, and that actually failed. I borrowed money on my house, went completely broke. And, but a guy that bought one at that kiosk, he uh, called me, and he says, are you the guy that invented this pillow from Minnesota here? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, I run the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show. He said, would you like a spot there? And that was the key for the next seven years. On the road, doing home shows, fairs. 2011, and I said, you know what? I'm going to bring the pillow to the people. But I said, we're going to make the best infomercial in history. And we did it uh, locally here in St. Paul. And uh, that launched October 7, 2011. And I had about five employees and my kids. And in 40 days, I had 500 employees. And it was just... And uh, And how many pillows uh, do you sell a year now? We've sold over 27 million. Goodness gracious. Now, Mike, what is, what is it about your pillow, my pillow slash your pillow, that's so good, different? It's, what's unique is I reverse engineered a pillow. They don't, all pillows go flat. You use your arm, you fold them. And I thought, you know what? If, what if you made a pillow you could adjust and it would be soft, but yet hold this position and be supportive. And nobody likes a firm pillow. We just need the, the height and softness. And then I spent another two months making it so you could wash and dry it. That was one of the hardest things is to get it to be able to do that. And you know what? In a 10-year period, yeah. you, you, the average person would buy about 40 pillows. We have six pillows per person per household in the United States. And if you take that, all the pillows you would have bought, we all have that pillow pile. Everybody does. You buy pillows that don't work. They pile yeah. up like cordwood. yeah. But what's in your pillows that they don't go flat? Is it spam in your pillows, perhaps? No. It's, uh, there's three different sizes. One's the size of a quarter, and one's the size of a dime, one's the size of down. So when you move them, they all interlock and hold, and it's soft, but you make the pillow fit you instead of trying to fit the pillow. You know, Krista, you travel a lot, yeah? Yes. In the last, whatever, 10 years or so, when you go into hotels, you walk in and the bed is made. How many pillows are there on the average hotel bed? pillow menu. I always travel with my own pillow. You're kidding. No. Another thing that my children are mortified by, wherever I'm going, it's, it's like a little piece of home and comfort. Right. Is there actually science about um, better sleep dependent on the pillow or... I'm, I'm, I'm actually right now doing the, one of the biggest sleep studies ever done in history. I believe that your pillow is the most important to your sleep ever, keeping your neck straight, folding pillows. It's all about trying to get that height. Worst pillow on the planet is a down pillow. Oh, it's all nice and soft. You lay there and all of a sudden, eat! you know, you're, you're walking around like this all day. Uh, Maggie, my pillow, Mike's pillow, our pillow, what more can you tell us? Well, I'm wondering... Uh, you said pillows have been around forever. Uh, originally, the first pillow that they found in Mesopotamia was uh, made out of stone, one of those kind of curved headrests. Then in Japan, they had wooden ones. In China, all that stuff too, and then also porcelain pillows. So I'm guessing that 
these work well for a back sleeper and a side sleeper. Uh, not so much for the stomach sleeper, though. Mm. Mike, if I recall correctly, having read about you, you had a long history of substance abuse yourself, yeah? Absolutely. I was a crack cocaine addict. Yeah, for, for a long time? Yeah, cocaine's from 1984, very functioning addict, till about 2002, and then I got into crack cocaine, and I quit that January 16, 2009. During the 90s, I had a couple of little bars in uh, Carver County, and uh, not real good for an addict. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And, uh, and then I had the pillow. When I invented the pillow, I, wow. was, I was on crack cocaine. Now, let me ask you this. I mean, can you, uh, do you have to give some credit to the invention of my pillow to crack cocaine then? I mean, I don't mean give credit to it, but I mean, you... you that I wasn't sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's an amazing story. Mike Lindell, thanks for telling it to us. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Would you please welcome to the stage our next guest, Tracy Mann. Hello, Hello, Tracy. Uh, Hi. Tell us about yourself. What do you do? Well, I'm a professor of social psychology at the University of Minnesota and <laughs> an author of Secrets from the Eating Lab, The Science of Weight Loss, The Myth of Willpower, and why you should never diet again. All right, tell us something we don't know, please, Tracy. All right, well, something that a whole lot of us do when we're stressed is eat comfort food to try to, you know, make ourselves feel better. So NASA is always looking for ways to reduce the stress of space flight for the astronauts and also for ways to get them to eat more. So maybe comfort food could kind of kill two birds with one stone. So my collaborators and I here at the U of M we were funded by NASA to test the effectiveness of comfort foods, first on Earth with non-astronaut people, and we'll call them people from here forward, and then <laughs> with astronauts at the International Space Station. So in our Earth study, we first put people into really bad moods. You put people into really bad moods. You yeah. do that. You make faces at them. What do you do? We use something psychologists do a lot, which is we showed them clips from a bunch of different films to induce all these different negative moods. And then we picked the most potent ones we could find. And it really is a great job this. you have in academia, isn't it? <laughs> um, so we had a scene from The Hurt Locker where Fear. somebody's about to explode. Different clips induce different emotions, but then we showed them a whole bunch of clips so that we could get to all those emotions. So that Hurt Locker one really just stresses you out. It's pretty unbearable to watch. Um, we had some sad ones, a scene from My Girl, which is the funeral of a child. Okay, yes. so you condition them to feel so bad. we just put them in these really bad moods, and then we either gave them their own particular comfort food, or we gave them a food that they liked, but that wasn't their comfort food. And to our surprise, it didn't matter which we gave them. Whatever we gave them, their mood improved the same amount. So we tried it again a bunch more times because we really wanted to show that comfort food worked better than something, than anything. So we compared comfort food to granola bars, or we compared it to no food at all. And still, it didn't matter. Everybody's mood improved the same amount. Even with no food at all? Yes, with no food at all. So basically, if you think comfort food is improving your mood, you're probably just giving it credit for a mood improvement that would have happened without it. So everything you know about diet and nutrition, all, I mean, this is what you've been working on for a long time, did it indicate to you that comfort food was a real conceit, that we turn to particular foods and they do make us feel better? Or did you think maybe it was a myth that needed busting? I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind that it wasn't true. In fact, we were completely bitter that NASA was making us test it with Earth people and not <laughs> astronauts first, because it was like, well, I don't want to waste my time testing something that everybody already knows. When we were testing all the miserable film clips... We gave them comfort food to make them feel better afterwards. We just assumed it was working. Mm -hmm. So now we know we sent them all home miserable. How did they define comfort food for themselves? So to figure out what each person's comfort food was, we gave them a long survey. We did what you do when you want to know something about them, but you don't want them to know what you wanted to know, which is you bury it 
and a ton of other questions. We gave them a very long questionnaire about all different things about food. And we had them list three foods for each of these many questions we asked so that we could be sure to find at least one of their comfort foods to offer to them when they came to the lab, which was awesome because that meant that we always had amazing food in the lab and different stuff every day, and it was <laughs> fantastic. Everyone should have their own comfort food, and no other research and, had ever I mean, used people's own. Was there a wide range own. of comfort foods? There, no, surprisingly, everyone chose spam. Everyone. <laughs> Yeah. Um, nobody chose spam. I'm sorry. Nobody chose spam. Oh, no. Oh. Um, but there wasn't too wide a range. It was, it was exactly what you'd expect. A lot of cookies, cake, brownies, things with chocolate, ice cream, um, an occasional macaroni and cheese. Uh, somebody put mashed potatoes, but we didn't use that one because it just would have felt weird to, you know, oh, you're, here you are in the lab watching a movie. Here, have some mashed potatoes. <laughs> it just wouldn't have seemed like something we'd do. Maggie, um, I guess we would call this one the uncomfortable truth about comfort foods, which yes. is they don't seem to really exist. What more can you tell us? Well, I'm, I'm wondering if any of the questions that you asked had to do specifically with loneliness or missing home and what someone would eat when they were missing home. We didn't ask about loneliness or missing home. Okay. We were trying to induce what astronauts might feel. Well, I think astronauts yeah. might feel lonely. So that's why I asked. Uh, and some of, interesting. The, some of the research that I found uh, connected comfort food and the idea of comfort food with loneliness. Wow, that never crossed our minds mm. when thinking about astronauts. Actually, NASA has lots of data on what stresses out astronauts. And it's not what you think. You think it would be, oh my God, I'm going to die. Dying in space, yeah. No, they're not, af- no, they are not afraid of anything. These they're guys so are unbelievable. Cool. But what stresses them out is like messing up. Like, they're so busy up there, they have so much to do, and they know that everything they do is sort of, like, they're standing on the shoulders of 10,000 people down here who made it possible, and they feel a lot of pressure to just do everything right. So, so I'm always interested in the value of learning these things about ourselves. So since you know this, you have this piece of science, um, let's say when you feel bad now and you would generally reach for comfort food, are you able to cognitively take this in and eat broccoli and know that you actually feel as good as if you'd eaten a mm. pint of ice cream? Sure. Well, that's one of the tips I suggest in my book um, is don't eat comfort food when you feel bad because it's not going to help you anyway. And you may as well eat it when you feel good and you can really enjoy it and savor it and appreciate it rather than when you're feeling crummy. So... Tracy Mann, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Nicely done. We're going to take a short break. When we return, more guests from our audience. We will talk about everything we've learned tonight. And yes, we will pick a winner. That is right after this break. Welcome back. We are coming to you from Minneapolis tonight. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Michael Derschlag. <laughs> Michael, tell us uh, who you are, what you do, please. Yeah, my name is Mike Derschlag, and I'm the director of Peas Academy, Peers Enjoying a Sober Education, and we are the oldest recovery school in the country, serving approximately 65 students who are all in recovery from substance use disorder. Now, what little I know about Minnesota is that it's sometimes called Minnesober for its very prominent, uh, you know, rehab and substance abuse And sometimes abuse the treatment. land of 10,000 treatment centers. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. So tell us something we don't know then about that school or what you do. Well, uh, in Minnesota, approximately 3,100 adolescents go to treatment uh, for substance use disorder every year. And unfortunately for a lot of these uh, young people, there is no continuum of care when they're done with treatment. And sometimes I think about when an adult comes out of treatment and then we, if we were to ask them to go spend six and a half hours a day, five days a week uh, at their favorite bar, but don't drink and go to a 12-step meeting afterwards, we'd look at that as the worst idea ever. Uh, but in a way, we ask adolescents to do this every single day when they get out of treatment. You know, they're going back to the same environment, the same community, they're going back to the same stress, the same friends, and actually the same access to the substance that they're trying to get away with. In essence, they're going back to the same bar, which is the school, which is no fault of the school, it's just the peer group. And we know that 
um, the importance of rebuilding new social networks, friendships, where they're supportive and not using. We uh, provide a safe recovery community where all the students are kind of at the same boat. There's research that's just coming out of Vanderbilt, and what they're finding is is that those students who are actually going to a recovery school um, have not only better instances of not relapsing, but also perform better academically Mm. as well. Krista, uh, are you familiar with this? First, you've heard of it? Um, I have heard of recovery high schools, and I'm very familiar with Hazelden, which is uh, Hazelden Betty Ford, Mm -hmm. which is a great Minnesota institution. Um, Friendships and relationships are so formative, right? Who you're surrounded by. And I imagine that friendships are formed, that that's a huge piece of it. Huge, huge. And Uh you know, when someone's really little, like my own children, you know, they're just kind of friends who's around and they have the similar interests. And when they're kind of going through this uh, middle school age, these formative years, and they get involved with drugs, including alcohol, all of a sudden the ability to make those friends becomes very skewed. You know, you, I mean, I'm sorry, you smoke a joint with someone the first time and you, you know, you're cool with them. Um, but that's not how real friendships uh, are, are created. So if you can put them in an environment where um, everybody's in the same boat, the, you know, birds of a feather flock together. So if we were to take a student and, and they would go to a different school, for some reason they're going to be attracted to that crowd over there. Uh, and Dr. Lee out of Hazelden, Betty Ford, is looking at the risk factor. You know, it, it's difficult for some of their uh, past friends to understand kind of the obsession and compulsion that can happen if exposed to using situations. Mm. Um, Michael, how rare is a school like this one? Are there a lot of them? Well, right now I believe there are 38 recovery schools uh, nationwide. Minnesota is lucky. We have six. Two just opened up this year. Uh, at our height, we had 13. Mm-hmm. And what, what will determine whether a given state or place has them? Uh, unfortunately, um, substance use disorder does not discriminate uh, geographically, socioeconomically, uh, racially. It, it's everywhere. And so really it's about uh, concerned people uh, of the community who start one themselves or they approach the, the local school district and say, we need this. New York City has been trying to open one for several mm-hmm. years. And there's so many different factors that go involved in, in education and starting a school that um, it's hard to take a certain model and then transplant in different areas between, because each local community has its own needs. Is it 12-step based? No, we're, we're not. Uh, we, we believe in multiple pathways to recovery. Uh, the 12 steps happens to be just a very common language that many of our students know, so that is often kind of the language we use too, uh, but we're not affiliated with any 12-step program. Hmm. Maggie Ryan Sanford, anything more you can tell us about Pease Academy or sobriety high schools? Well, apparently the reason that a lot of prevention in schools, uh, drug prevention in schools fails is because they don't actually take into consideration the reality of that peer-to-peer relationship. Um, Apparently that was the problem with D.A.R.E., and according to many studies, including a recent one, the, the conclusion is one sentence, and it says, our study supports previous findings indicating D.A.R.E. is ineffective. So it sounds like you guys, yeah, give him a hand. Michael Dirschlag, thank you so much for coming to tell, you. tell us something we don't know. Nicely done. And would you please welcome our final audience guest of the evening, Mr. Rick Meek. Rick, uh, what do you do? I work at Orfield Laboratories. We are an acoustic testing facility. Tell us something we don't know about that, please. We have the quietest room in the world. No way. Yes. Really? Well, according to Guinness World Records. Really? Yes. Yes. It's called an anechoic chamber. Like anti-echo, does that mean? Exactly, yes. As opposed to the reverb chamber across the hall. Ah. Yes. Can I ask, yeah. how yes. quiet is it? It, uh, it is a 10 dB room. That means for Look you that up. in the audience, it yes. means 10 decibels. <laughs> Didn't even have to look it up. Yes. Is that right? Yes. So you, your facility is the quietest laboratory. On record. Okay, and what do you do there then? I am an uh, acoustician. Okay. Which means I'm a laboratory technician and consultant. I do sound power tests in the anechoic chamber. Like chainsaws? Is that what you're after? Yes, yes. Oh. You would, yes, you would test a chainsaw, yes. Okay. For, and or a Toro lawnmower or okay. a Maytag washing machine. And the idea is, is generally to, to make them all quieter or just to see how loud they are? Well, 
when they engineer these devices, they have a rating that they are going for. So, so you would build a wall or a floor to achieve the right you, the sound level. Right, you're looking for like. the performance that the wall will do, what its value determined by the materials that you're going to use. And they already know what values they want or what they're going to achieve. We just run the test and get the numbers for them. Do you ever go in that chamber after a tough day the, just to peace out? The anechoic chamber? Yeah. I, I have sat there for 20 minutes or What's so. What's that like? It's, well, the difference between a reverb room and an anechoic is a reverb room does even sound in the room, so no matter where you stand, you get the same sound. Anechoic is the opposite. It absorbs the noise in the room. So it's not really quiet. It just uh, doesn't reflect the noise uh, back to you. Uh-huh. So while you're standing in the room, you, after a while, you start to hear your bones, your joints mm. moving. You, you, can, you can hear your heartbeat. You can feel and hear your blood flowing through your... That sounds super creepy. It, yeah. it, it's Some people, you open the door, they cannot even go into the room. Wow. Krista, um, you've interviewed a lot of people for whom silence and meditation and things like that are an incredibly important component of their lives. What have you learned about silence generally or the pursuit thereof? Um, there's a perception, which I share, that silence is, is an endangered thing. As the world becomes noisier and our lives are noisier, that, we're, that I think many of us are rediscovering our need for silence. Um, Krista... Talking about, you know, an increasingly noisy world, I remember once talking to um, an academic who made the, uh, I guess to him, obvious observation, but to me I never thought about it, which is that, um, you know, we've got eyelids, we can close our eyes to avoid something, we can shut our mouths to stop talking, we don't have ear lids. And it does seem kind of like a design flaw, you know, in a world that's kind of noisy. Yeah, although, you know, I have to say, I have just gotten a... A hearing aid for one ear. These hearing aids now, I mean, this is a big growth field, right? Because people who've been listening to loud music in their ears since they were 12, um, they are so amazing. Rick Meek, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Nicely done. Can we give one more hand to all our audience uh, presenters tonight? Really great job. Thank you, folks. We've learned some grade A information from our guest presenters, and now it's time to pick one that was just a notch above the rest. Our live audience will determine the winner by text vote, but before we turn it over to them, let's have the three of us, our special guest co-host, Krista Tippett, our fact checker, Maggie Ryan Sanford, and me, Stephen Dubner, we will weigh in on what we think deserves the prize. The three criteria, remember, are did they tell us something we did not know? Was it worth knowing, and was it demonstrably true? So, Krista Tippett, why don't you handle the first criterion of everything we heard tonight? What would you say is your favorite in terms of something you truly did not know? Um, <laughs> I honestly didn't know that pillows had been such a neglected feature mm. of culture and that a down pillow is not, in fact, superior. Yeah, um, when you say that you didn't know about it, is it something that is one of those obvious in retrospect moments or more like you hadn't really thought about it? Uh, yeah, maybe it's a little bit like comfort food mm. in that I was making this assumption that my down pillow was making me happier. Mm -hmm. Although I have all the symptoms which were described, mm -hmm. the tossing, the mm -hmm. turning, the rearranging. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, so I'll take the, the next criteria. Who told us something tonight that's really worth knowing? I'm grateful to know about turtles changing their sex by temperature. I didn't know that. Um, I love the Hawaiian history of spam. But in terms of truly worth knowing, for me, it might be a split between the comfort food idea. Because if you know that comfort food doesn't make you feel any better, then you might as well eat the food that you kind of feel you should. But in terms of worth knowing, I find the story of um, the true cause of the decline of Mexican immigration to be really interesting because I think that... Um, 
Because I think that just says a lot about how we often fight the last war. So being an economics nerd, I I found that um, quite interesting and and gratifying. Maggie Ryan Sanford, our real-time fact checker, uh, let's hear your favorite based on the demonstrably true metric? Yeah, I was impressed with the recovery school because there's not a lot of data out there about education. So the fact that our guest um, doing the recovery schools at Pease was so informed about that gets my vote. Excellent. A vote in favor of um, verification. Yeah. All right, then, audience, you've heard from us, but we don't pick the winner. You do. It's time now to do that. So who will it be? Rick Meek with The Quietest Room on Earth, Michael Derschlag with, we'll call it Not So High High Schools, Tracy Mann with The Uncomfortable Truth About Comfort Food, Mike Lindell with My Pillow Is Your Pillow, Tim Taylor with The Real Reason Mexican Immigration Has Fallen, Savile Lord with Spam Goes to Hawaii, or Steve Friedberg with Turtle Sex on the Beach. Please take out your phones. You can follow the texting instructions on the screen. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thanks so much to all our guest presenters. Our winner tonight, thank you so much for telling us about the real reason that Mexican immigration has fallen. Timothy Taylor, congratulations. To commemorate your victory, Tim, we'd like to present you with this certificate of impressive knowledge suitable for framing. And that is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know. Huge thanks to Krista Tippett, Maggie Ryan Sanford, to all our presenters, and thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Have a great night. Thank you. Next week, our final episode of this season of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My good friend James Altucher co-hosts. And although we didn't quite plan it this way, the theme is Urinetown. Hennig Brand is a 17th century alchemist. And like most alchemists, he believed that you could transmute lesser materials, in this case, urine, into gold. Um. So he got about a thousand gallons of it, went to his basement lab. (laughs) (laughs) It's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, and Rachel Jacobs. Our live engineer in Minneapolis was Dustin Dancesack. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. When people from different cultures get married, how do they decide what food is going to be their food? You've completely given up the way you grew up eating. When we pass our cultures on to our kids, what are the complications? Generations and generations of Jewish people in my family who've kept kosher. Like, is it going to end with me? Am I going to be the one that's going to stop? I'm Dan Pashman from the Sporkful Podcast. Join me for our latest series on race, culture, and food called Your Mom's Food. How do parents who adopt kids from other countries use food to connect their children to their birthplace? It's one of the few things that is truly Ethiopian that I can give to him. And what happens when those kids grow up and feel like it wasn't enough? We'd go to this camp in the mountains, and that was where we were Korean. And then once we left, that was kind of it. Your mom's food is up now. I'm in a cultural struggle in North America, too. Would I be happier if you kept kosher and they kept kosher? Yeah. That's like the first thing you do with your kid is you feed them. Subscribe to The Sporkful in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.